we can all have as good of a life as the average. <laughs> First, yes. Yes, exactly. For our fourth episode, we're going to be changing things up a little bit, focusing less on a particular text or thinker and more on a single concept, namely security. Uh, we have read a piece together, a, a portion of Mark Neoclius's critique of security from 2008, but our focus is not so much on working through that text together, but kind of using this book as a, as a starting point and common reference for a more general issue-based conversation about left critiques of security and also about the role played by safety and collective self-defense in left power building. So I was hoping as a sort of loose itinerary that we could do two things. The first is to discuss the critique of security or the critiques, not just in this book, but in critical theory broadly defined. So you got the Marxist critique of security as foundational to capitalist property relations. You know, Marx called security the supreme concept of bourgeois society. You have the Foucauldian account of security as a technology for governing populations, the critique of security politics as foundationally anti-black, um, and Neoclius takes up these first two, two critiques. Obviously, we can't get, all, get into all of these in detail, but uh, I think they provide a kind of context for a conversation about the place of security in the imagining and articulation of alternatives to the liberal capitalist framing of security. Uh, and the second thing is, um, and this leads to the second thing, which is that I hoped we could, we could do... A, or hoped we could talk about how we avoid ceding the whole territory of safety or security to right-wing authoritarianism or liberal covert authoritarianism, as Neoclius presents it. Uh, so I guess my first question will start from the piece that we read, which is, what do you all make of Neoclius's claim that security, more than any other concept, is the foundation concept, the foundational concept of the liberal capitalist order, not freedom, it's not rights, right? That security is the core foundational concept of liberal capitalism. Yeah, I have to say, I was, I, I found this reading really surprising and uh, informative. So, you know, I do know, obviously, you know, the, this type of podcast, you know, the various critiques of, of liberalism. But the idea that, no, it isn't actually always about this balancing act between security and liberty. It's actually, you know, the, almost the idea that you'll have liberty once we have security. Mm -hmm. It is, you know, it, it seemed to me the, you know, you know, taking, he took, he takes John Locke to task. The idea that actually once you start opening this uh, space of, you know, the prerogative of the, of the state to assess what um, positive law has not actually figured out to, you know, know how to respond, then you have this whole idea of, well, okay, it's really fine and good to have liberty, but the state's always going to be the final decider of, you know, what are the necessary conditions for you to have that individual freedom you want? 
And lastly, it seems like this notion of liberty is so bound up in personal property and that what's being secured must always be private property. And right. that's what's always being reacted against. So that gave me a really different view of you know, mm -hmm. the sort of trajectory of liberalism. And it kind of ends in this idea that it's actually not the issue that liberalism's too weak. It seems that liberalism is quite strong. And that was really incisive to me. And that it harbors authoritarianism. Yeah, this is like one of his critiques of like Carl Schmitt, right? Who says like, oh, right. liberalism's like this really weak, like kind of uh, bastard form of like political organization that can't handle exceptions and it can't mm. actually deal with emergencies properly. Mm. Uh, and that's why we need like, you know, a good dictatorship, our favorite Nazi jurist, right? But Contra he knows that what's line. good. <laughs> he knows what's right. Yeah, but contra that, right? Like Nyakis' claim is like, no, actually, this like deciding on exceptions and declaring emergencies like is liberalism. Like this is how it works. Right? It's just that it's kind of constitutionally articulated into the liberal order, right? No, it's interesting. Like I, I went back and I read that. So he begins his sort of history of the concept, and he kind of gives us like the stages uh, where like the first version of this. Uh, security problematic that he identifies is in John Locke, as you mentioned, in the Second Treatise of Government. And then he tracks that through uh, the development of this discourse of like martial law throughout the 17 and 1800s. Mm -hmm. And then that this martial law discourse becomes a discourse of like the state of emergency, um, which he thinks is better language than the state of exception um, in the early 20th century. And so we're all familiar with this stuff. And like the book does a really nice job, I think, of framing this for us, like, you know, after. Mm -hmm. September 11th, we get all these invocations of like, oh, this is a state of emergency. This is an exceptional situation. Of course, we're going to have to abrogate certain rights. And like, so I think like Neoclius's claim is like, like you asked this question, right? Do, what do we make of this claim of his that like security is the foundational concept of liberalism more than these, these other things? And I think the reason why that's plausible is because that, as he says, is like, it's the one of these concepts that's absolute. Right, mm -hmm. like we have freedoms, we have rights, sure, but those will get suspended or, uh, yeah, curtailed. or abrogated or curtailed or yeah. restricted or limited in reference to security. Like, security seems like an absolute in this context. So, I loved take, being taken back to the Bush era. I'm really into this in general, politically, and I think it's easy to forget what that was like and it occurred to me in reading this that the way that the liberal political establishment in the United States and globally treated the Trump years was as a state like Trump was the emergency nice mm -hmm. and the reason it's compelling to go back to the Bush years is for all of the reasons that the text mentioned the incredible security dynamic that was going on that the right was deploying to get us into all these wars and then later in the Obama years which were after this text to endorse torture and drones and all kinds of stuff but there's this long view that I started to put into place and maybe I read the discussion about liberalism a little differently than I heard Owen mention it at the beginning of the podcast because to me liberalism is a big tent and so when we ask, what does it mean to kind of seed the ground on talking about security and so on to the far right, I think the right is a part of liberalism. Like, liberalism has a spectrum. Like, I actually don't agree with their argument that, like, Trump is a fascist. I think he's the hard right of liberalism. I think it's possible for 
liberalism to coexist with these kind of contradictions of security and, and nationalism and so on and f so forth. This is mm. well known. And liberalism has a very broad spectrum. And it's not actually the case that the opposite of the right is the liberal. It's the fact that liberalism has this political spectrum. So I was wondering what you all thought about that, because I thought I understood it to be more of a meta critique in that way. And then the other question I had was about the framing of the argument. And this is something that I just want to bring up because I feel like philosophers make this move a lot, that liberalism says it's like universal, it's colorblind, it's neutral. And then philosophers say, by the way, it isn't. Actually, there's a really yeah. ugly underbelly to liberalism. And I was rereading a chapter that Charles Mills was writing about this kind of argument. And I'm no longer, I'm convinced about that, that it's true politically. And that when circumscribed within liberal political institutions under capitalism or throughout the development of capitalism and in the colonial context, that this is the case, that there's an ugly underbelly to liberalism. But I'm not so sure that like it's the concepts, like it's liberalism as a set of ideas itself that has to has, have this, mm -hmm. like it's this ugly underbelly that it's intrinsic to liberalism because, you know, in, in the chapter I was reading, it's like Mills does this really, I think, thorough way of like he categorizes all the different kinds of liberalism. You know, everyone from Rawls to Iris Young to communitarians to like left liberal social democrats, they're all on the spectrum. I might be a liberal. I don't want to live in an illiberal society. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. so yeah. Mm -hmm. if it makes sense as a question, like what's the register of concern? Like what liberalism are we worried about here? Um, so two things I want to respond to. I want to respond to the thing that you said last because I actually was wondering about this as well. It seems to me that there's a difference between showing that this concept of security, you know, uh, is permeated by the the theorizations uh, of liberalism. So if you can track it down in John Locke boom, there you go. But it seems to be quite another thing to argue that, you know, the political um, actuality, the political actual formation of liberalism has its foundation in insecurity. So my question would be something along the lines of, I always want to draw how there can be a linkage between theory and actual political formation. Just because John Locke or John Rawls or Hobbes thought something doesn't mean that that is actually what's occurring in the actual world of what is called liberalism. And so that brings me to the second thing, which is paradoxically the first thing you said. I never thought of liberalism as a spectrum of trying to understand you know, uh, Trump as you know, sort of the far right of liberalism. It seems to me there you're talking not in theory, but in political practice of how we see liberalism functioning as this liberal project that we he here and now know in the United States. And so I think the question for me is not like, you know, is it about seeding the notion of freedom if you reject how liberalism actually constitutes itself? Hmm. But mm -hmm. it seems to me, what does it mean to analyze the actual material formation we're dealing with? And that seems to me maybe that would be a different type of critique than what something like someone like Charles Mills is doing, showing, look at all these presuppositions you all ignored all the untermensch stuff with Kant and look at this but obviously I do think it is different when you're talking about the colonies and all of that because you can find those spaces of exception built into liberalism saying well you know there's civilization then there's what's going on over there yeah I think the reason why 
it's helpful to go back to Locke here, right, is not just because whatever, it's something that someone wrote, but because he really clearly articulates, I think, what is like the centerpiece of this broad umbrella of liberalism that can capture all sorts of positions from a center-left or, or like liberal democratic all the way to like a right iteration in the form of someone like Trump. And that is that at the end of the day, it is about private property and the accumulation of capital as the sort of thing that's like the, what, what all of this turns out to be about and whatever sort of window dressing we might put on it or whatever kind of articulations might be given in a particular legal formation, that does seem to be a centerpiece. And so, like, and the claim is that that's already true in the theory. It's already true in Locke, and he just not just Locke, right? He traces this through Montesquieu and Thomas Paine, the Federalist Papers, right? It isn't just the case that that liberalism never talks about security, or at least it doesn't talk about it in the same way that you know someone like Hobbes does, who is our usual kind of reference point for the securitarian thinker, but that. Even theoretically, if you you know read that stuff carefully, if you read Locke carefully, security is already there at the very core because of the place that private property holds in his thinking. Actually, Hobbes kind of I think escapes this a little bit. Like it, he, there was a line in in the Neoclius text that I I'm not going to be able to like find right now, but that doesn't sound like Hobbes in an interesting way. Like mm-hmm. Hobbes is sort of like you know, argument for leaving the state of nature and like, you know, becoming part of this like social body under the protection of the sovereign, like is not articulated around this concept of property in the same way that it like totally is with Locke, I think. No, but what they both have in common, or at least the way Neoclius presents it, is that they are both oriented and basically their founding premise is the threat of insecurity. Right? And they're yeah, driven by fear. True. And the usual story we get is Hobbes is the authority figure because, you know, his state of nature is so brutal, right? And so there's that that primal insecurity, which is the which is the kind of necessary starting point for building security. And then the idea, well, the usual story says that, well, then the liberals kind of broke with that, right? Locke came along and said that, you know, it's the state isn't just about security. In, sta- in fact, in, on some readings, it might seem that he's saying that the state isn't even primarily about security. It's about secure, or it's about, well, securing liberty, right? And that's where Neoclus makes his point, mm, right? right? It's about securing liberty, and liberty is secured through securing of private property. And so it turns mm. out that they're actually thoroughly continuous even though they, it might be a different kind of insecurity that they're starting from, the insecurity of the state of nature in Hobbes versus the insecurity of theft and the loss of property in Locke and, and, and the liberal tradition. Yeah, it's interesting that like security here like has like a future-oriented character in a way that like these other supposedly fundamental concepts of liberalism are not, right? Like, I might be free or have rights right now, and that doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. about like my status tomorrow but security is precisely about like capturing the future locking down what the future will look like making it predictable in some way yeah it's the anticipation of future threats yeah what i found fascinating thinking about this future um oriented notion and is the idea that what seems to be distinct about not just the concept security but you know the return to kind of what i was saying it's actual political deployment is that you know and neocles gets this that you know security is animated by let's call it this you know this constitutive insecurity you know you don't need security yeah. unless you're you're not sure uh that everything is locked down yet it would seem to get rid of insecurity would mean something like absolute security forever and ever, which means that there is never an end to security. And so either way you go, it seems, you know, you can, you can have rights, but with security, it is the idea of like, you know, either we're not sure 
or we will always be sure. And it seems to me that like security becomes this uh, almost this uh, this deadlock. You'll you'll never be done with it. So it seems almost um, ridiculous to think that you know when this national security apparatus is generated like during the Bush years, in what time could it ever be over? When it could, it it, go away? you know. And I like that you picked quote. I did not realize that Dick Cheney had said something like, "Oh." you are not going to see the end of this for a long while. During I, our lifetimes, he said. Yeah, yeah, I. that was wild. And he was right. But I think, you know, um, uh, you know, and we can address this later or not at all, but, you know, what I kind of heard Lillian saying or what I, my gloss on it and all that is, because you can trace how certain concepts are ruined within a certain framework, does that mean the concepts as such are a problem? So does that yeah. mean, you know, um, let's like leave freedom to the side. Does that mean that the concept of security as such has this futural sort of, you know, uh, captured element such that we must not only militate against its actual uh, material practices, but even the concept must be done away with? Is the framework the problem or is, is it the concept? And that's what I was trying to parse in the Neocleus mm. text. You know, that's why I was asking, so what is the relationship between John Locke's ideas and what we can actually find in our political realities? Is it that John Locke happened to sync up with his material reality, or did John Locke actually birth this? Uh, I think I think Neocleus's claim, and I think I might agree with him, is that we need to jettison the concept of security almost entirely. That's really like, that's. Yeah. That's like where he lands, I think. That's what right? I was thinking. And, and he precisely because we end up in all of these deadlocks otherwise. I mean, to go back to something you were just saying, he's very good at showing this empirically, and we have tons of examples of this. But he traces it back all the way to like the 1800s uh, with like martial law. Um, but like, you know, our, our most common and familiar examples of this are all of the things that were established during the, the so-called war on terror, right? And like the state of emergency established as a result of like, you know, the, the post in the post nine 11 world as is, is obvious to everyone paying attention, like that, like exceptional situation that like temporary power never actually goes away. It has this tendency to like become a permanent feature of the entire landscape and like, hemming in our political possibilities it might be the case that there's not a way to articulate security as a concept that doesn't end up doing this mm. um and this is why i think he wants us to like to move away from it he ends the book mm. i didn't read the entire thing but i jumped to, to the conclusion which is always you know what you ought to do when you're reading a book is just read the intro and the conclusion and then guess at what the middle chapters are actually saying is this your uh pedagogical <laughs> opinion here is are, uh, if your students were listening are they what, like are you actually do you read whole books that's ridiculous who's got the time charlatans wow yeah, get out of here wow. wow but he says toward the end like, that he, like what he actually wants us to do is to, to develop a new vocabulary one that's not okay uh, organized around security as this sort of central concept yeah and he doesn't really do that work so then i guess right. if we accept that which is still a conversation right then then, and maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but then the question becomes, how do you talk about the kinds of needs for safety, collective self-defense, neighborhood safety, things like that? You know, what is the, how, you know, how do you start even pushing in the direction of doing that kind of recreation of, a, of, a, of, a, of our vocabulary around those mm -hmm. particular issues? Because surely the issue, you know, the aim is not just to get rid of the word, right? That Hopefully we're not okay. at that <laughs> level of idealism, right? That... Um, you oh. know, once we get rid of that word, then we're now free of the whole securitarian 
political order. Right? Now okay, listen, you called me I'm, out on I my have politics. To pose one more like meta question okay. before we move in that direction. I'm not as happy as I used to be with like arguments that we just need to get rid of liberalism. So the reason I asked why in the first place, whether or not we're talking about this problem being intrinsic to liberalism conceptually, like even under different material conditions, we've had, we would have this problem with liberalism, or if the problem is liberalism circumscribed within the particular kinds of institutions that we are currently living in. Now, I can see an argument for the former, or sorry, the latter, with the kinds of institutions that we're living in. Like, I find it persuasive to argue that this issue of security emerges with the development of the modern state, which is distinctively, and, and I don't really love the idea of the modern state. I prefer to talk about the capitalist transition and the capitalist state, because that's when you have the separation institutionally between the economy and the polity, and within the economy, political mm -hmm. power is privatized, and the state can, in principle, belong to everyone, right? But that doesn't mean that its role isn't to secure private property rights. So you have this mitigating factor of the state. The state, I think importantly, solves certain collective action problems that capitalism, capital itself, within the economy can't solve. And so you start to get this dynamic of needing to secure things within a system that is unstable, crisis-ridden. So I find that enough that persuasive. But then I start to get a little bit worried when it's like, okay, we need to jettison the concept of security, which means, because it's intrinsic and constitutive of liberalism conceptually, that we need to get rid of liberalism. Okay, like this is something continental philosophers like to do. But again, I'm going to say it again, I don't want to live in illiberal society. I think that talking about reasonable pluralism, minority rights, basic liberties. It sounds good to me. Like I'm like Charles Mills in that way and not because I actually identify full in a full-throated way as a liberal, but I'm just not that interested. I'm a little more wary in saying okay, this is constitutively a part of liberalism and now we got to get rid of liberalism. I feel like that's a move that gets made a lot. It's a very 2008 move, which is when this book was written. And I don't know, I think we have to be, again, and maybe this is bringing it back to Owen's question, I feel like, you know, people don't want to live in a society where they're not sure, again, how their rights are going to be secured. Mm -hmm. So what do we do with that? I was thinking something exactly along those lines around sort of um, the discussion around policing, specifically around policing in the black community. For for my purposes, I actually find the discussion, especially uh, online, I definitely think it's more nuanced when you're looking at, at writings, but I find it's very confused because it's confused because it assumes what all black people want is to absolutely get rid of the police, which is a sexy line, but it doesn't actually touch on how these people are talking about what their worries are. And if these are people who are in, you know, um, not to get biographical, I grew up in a relatively poor neighborhood with crime. The thing is, it's not just you want the police off your back. You, you want to know that you're safe. Mm 
You want to feel okay walking down the street. And so I find it very baffling when people are surprised. Like I know a, a lot, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, um, Biden and the 94 crime bill, and they're surprised to find that there were apparently of according to available polling, and we can always get into our critiques of polling, but there were black people behind the bill. And so I don't think it's useful to pretend that that isn't the case because there's a very particular need that is being expressed. And we can definitely argue against how that need is being addressed, but it doesn't seem to me enough. And I don't think, you know, like you know, people on the ground are doing this. It's not enough to try to tell communities that are suffering from economic insecurity and, you know, personal insecurity, we just want to get rid of the, the one thin veneer that could address that because they're going to ask, so what, what do you have in place? What are you mm -hmm. going to do next? And so partially I think it's like, so what the conceptual critique should be about for me is it should be clarifying. So what is it? What is the, what is the vocabulary people have for expressing their needs? One and two, what does it seem that the needs actually are? And then we're having a different conversation, I think, around this notion of security, because I wrote in my notes, is there a difference between sort of geopolitical and national security and sort of material security or, you know, um, a security of, of dignity, if we want to put it that way? And so that was something I, I was kind of wondering about, because for me, I don't know if it's all about jettisoning this or that language, but I'm wondering, so what are the issues that people find themselves facing? And it might very well make sense why they want to have some toehold in the concept of security. Yeah, the, the rhetorical move, at least, if we like, yeah, get practical for a second. Think about like how we carry forward the lessons from this critical analysis, right? And like it, what certainly can't be the takeaway, I don't think. Uh, you know, we live in a very hostile and inhospitable, dangerous feeling, precarious world. Um, some obviously some of us more than others. And one of the sort of draws and like sort of rhetorical force uh, that people on the right are able to do is use this language of security to speak to those fears and anxieties in an effective way, right? That allows for their uh, seizure and maintenance of political power. And in response to that, the left, the left response to that can't just be like, well, you're dumb and wrong for feeling insecure security is bad and you shouldn't want it. Like that's an obviously losing proposition, right? And so maybe like one way that we can kind of rethink or reframe this, like uh, pro the project of this book, I, I think a lot about this language of uh, that comes out of like Adorno and negative dialectics where he talks about doing like not just a critique, but a critique and rescue. And mm -hmm. there's not a rescue of the concept of security in this book, but maybe we should want one. Right. Instead of just trying to like leave it behind, but trying to figure out how to articulate a left version of security as a as an alternative to this like rightist, ultimately like Neoclius's argument, veneer for the legitimacy of political power exercised in the service of capital. Right. We might want to figure out how to speak to these as real anxieties, but reframe it. The reframing thing is interesting to me in relation to what Will was saying about policing because I was listening to Megyn Kelly's interview with Candace Owens, and I felt like I really learned a lot about how the right thinks about this issue of policing. And Candace Owens really leans hard into the idea that the left just doesn't actually care about black people. They don't care about women and children. They don't care about people who are affected by crime. And I was listening to that, and I've heard that before elsewhere, but 
she really, you know, digs into it rhetorically and emotionally. And so it has this moral pull. And I was thinking to myself, when you ask a lot of people on the far left, not, not, not the liberal center, what to do when we, what to say about crime, often what you hear are these kind of very, they seem political, but they're actually like philosophical takes about the discursive creation of crime. Like crime isn't real. Crime is something that was state engineered to kind of occupy poor communities, black communities, and so on. And then you've got people like Candace Owens who are like, fuck you. Like this is like the, this is, we're talking, you don't make, murders aren't being made up. Robberies are not made, like, you know, breaking and entering. It's not, this isn't a discursive ploy. This happens to people and people are worried about it. Mm-hmm. Like my question that, you know, Will's comment raised for me is like, that doesn't to me mean like justify the extent of policing in America, which is like, like we're talking about a historically, uh, um, an epoch making crime against humanity. That's what's going on in this country. But if you respond to those kinds of arguments with just like crime isn't happening, then the right response to mm-hmm. you, like that's delusional. But is, isn't the, the problem, you know, not to disagree with the not to disagree with Candace Owens, but isn't the problem not really that the left doesn't um, take those problems seriously and more that the left doesn't really exist, right? Like safety, enough, yeah. safety and well-being are only are things that can only be done collectively. And there isn't in the U.S., you know, a, there isn't a kind of countervailing power against any kind of organized countervailing power against the power of the state. So if the only if the only mode of collective organization that exists is the state and safety and security can only be delivered collectively, then all you know you're asking people to choose between the state and nothing, right? And so right. a lot of people will choose the state over nothing. I think that's right. Yeah. And, and so um, uh, another piece you sent us, uh, I, was this by also by Nucleosis, uh, A World Without Police? Yeah, he edited it. Was oh, it? no, that's a that's a pamphlet that I, I thought might be useful as a kind it's, of... Yeah. I thought that pamphlet was really, really um, interesting and you know, mm-hmm. uh, insightful. Because you know, as I was reading, I'm like, okay, uh, you know, I'm on board with the problem. I'm on board with you know, people throw out the, the sort of um, genealogical critique of the police in this country. Slave patrols. Securing, yeah. Slave patrols, all of that. Um, you know, I'm going to be... A, I'm gonna, what? Hmm? Strike, well, strike, strike, strike breakers, breakers and slave yes. patrols. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the police. Mm-hmm. Yes, I am completely on board with that. But you know, I started wondering as I was reading this pamphlet, though. You know, but what do you say to people who um, experience you know domestic violence or sexual violence? You know, especially mm-hmm. in like a, a lot of uh, uh, inner city, um, especially you know, maybe you know black and brown neighborhoods. It's like this this goddamn vice. You know. You, you only have the options of calling the police or or what, but you know sometimes the police leads to more violence, and mm-hmm. you know th- these are people who I I know think about, but I also know about the racial function of the police and all of that, and so I love near the end to start talking. About, well, we need to start building collective organizations, especially mm-hmm. survivor led groups mm-hmm. of of mutual aid of of addressing these types of things, and there we're talking about not just imagining a different type of society. Again, I think that's sometimes. I've just thrown out that we need more than imagination, but mm-hmm. it's also meeting a real need. And it's also, you know, using language that we understand of how we can get from, you know, from A to B. 
And this also addresses the issue of you know, having a countervailing power to, you know, it's not only the state that can, you know, that can decide and deliver on these things, but it's also really giving a materially grounded way of understanding what would it look like to have a countervailing power? What would it look like to refuse what I call the vice between it's either the state or good luck? I guess you're just going to have to bear those those traumas on your own. Yeah, in this context, I always think of like Angela Davis's arguments for prison abolition, where she's very clear, right, that like especially like the 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 carceral apparatus is so massive and so like important and like constituting such a huge part of our social fabric that abolition practically and literally cannot mean just like destroying it and having nothing in its place right like that's just not thinkable and not desirable for some of these reasons that you're expressing but instead abolition has to be understood as a project of building contrary institutional and collective forms right ones that answer to some of these same needs and so like one of the like i had this conversation with someone a while ago and it was precisely about this question that you asked well like what do you say to like a, a survivor of like domestic violence or a sexual assault who wants to call the police and it's very difficult to say that they're wrong for wanting there to be some kind of redress or for there to be something like justice of some kind but in practical terms like as you said though when you call the cops what happens is more violence and more incarceration and not actual redress or justice unfortunately and so like we can maybe kind of drive a wedge here by saying that the that the the desires being expressed are legitimate and genuine and the only outlets that are on offer for those desires to actually mean something practically are because they're channeled through the state through the police through uh, these security apparatuses through incarceration are just not adequate and in fact are mo moving in the wrong direction. I'll be the iconoclast in the group and stick up for the role of the state and providing an alternative. So I think that as in terms of an alternative to the function of policing, whatever that is. So any, any society is going to have people who are assholes and problem people and you need a way to like deal with them. Okay, so I, I just take for granted that if it's not the police, you need a way to address problems. So, and in terms of that kind of question, what would an alternative to the police look like in whatever function you would want to reimagine for keeping a community safe internally? I'm on board with mutual aid and, you know, the self-organization of a community as opposed to the kind of occupying power that the state currently is. But I also think that in or the, the alternative to the kind of massive carceral state that exists on a state-by-state -state basis in the United States, I think that if you don't have some kind of reforms at a federal level to resolve some of the social problems that generated the police as a political project to confront them, then I just don't think that this kind of that those more small scale anti state measures are going to be an adequate replacement. So I think that there needs to be, you know, the massive redistribution of wealth. And I just don't think that there's like an alternative to that at a 
like community level. I guess too, I don't think of those as necessarily opposed. I think what's uh, what's important is you know, maybe it's um, about tactics or strategies, but I think part of the work has to be something along the lines of, well, you need to be able to like you know, say to people that there is a way that we could do this differently. Mm-hmm. And you know, once you secure that idea of the way, there's a way that we could um, do this differently, then you need to start asking the harder questions of, so what are the ways we could actually secure the viability of doing these things differently? And la- in the last episode, I think I recall saying something, or one of us said something along the lines of, does it make sense to talk about democracy if you know, people are going hungry and they don't have you know, the means to, you know, to secure uh, uh, very vital needs? And so once you're you're putting it like that, then it's about, well, for for this small thing to be viable, it turns out the landscape of, you know, the society would have to be massively restructured. And so I actually, you know, thought it might be interesting instead of going from big to small, saying even this small thing would require much more than, okay, maybe if one community can pull it off, maybe that's all right. You know, even like, you know, you can look at, you know, historical examples of black people trying to develop their own independent economy like you know Tolson, they just don't have the capital to do that like historically you know e franklin frazier he's like this was a mad a maddening thing that they thought that they could do and so you need would need a large-scale re-landscaping of not just your know, wealth but also a different understanding of what the state should be protecting i really like the formulation that you had of thinking about alternative what, like showing that there's an alternative way that things could be done and then asking what would need to be secured. But again, there's the word security, like what are the conditions that would secure our capacity to do so? Um, I think my comment was really just, I'm not so invested in like state phobia. I think that one of the central contradictions in capitalist societies between the state and the economy and attempts to run away from the state altogether are less addressing that contradiction and more of an evasion of it. Yeah, I think one of the things that the state becomes an answer to is the question of durability, right? Because I I like that part in that pamphlet too, and they explore a number of different kind of um, bottom-up ways of trying to build institutions, build power at a more kind of local level to do the kinds of things that people want the police to do, but the police in actual fact don't actually, don't actually do, right? They end up performing, you know, a different function the securing of, securing of private property and et cetera. I think the skepticism people have and the reason why the state appeal, like seems more appealing, right, is because those institutions oftentimes lack durability, right? It's hard to envision how, and that's where security comes back in, right? Like security speaks to the desire for endurance, right? For something, Stability. Yeah. To go, going back to our point about anticipation, to know that that will be there tomorrow and to know that 10 years from now it's going to be there. Right. And that's something mm-hmm. that whether it is whether you see as as Lillian is saying, like whether you think that the state is an plays an ineluctable role in that um, or it doesn't that the state is one answer to that dur- durability question. Right. So if mm-hmm. we're going to seriously think about what other kind of responses to this problem, people's genuine need to feel safe are going to look like. I think that we have to very seriously address that 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 question of how you do dur- durability without the state. So. Yeah, that you know that's uh, exactly right. So what I am, um, you know, what I think you know, we can bring back our conceptual knives. And so recently, I was reading a couple of essays from Eric Olin Wright called um, uh, "Real Utopia" or something like that. Ooh. And 
you know, he comes up. You know, I had to read it. Like, you know, if you put Utopia in the title, by the way, if you want me to be a reader of anything you do, <laughs> just throw it on there because I'm always Googling it. So yeah. I don't know if it matters to you. Even but though when that I'm stuff big, is when Eric became a lib at the end of his life. No problem. No shade. Oh. Keep going. Do you have like a Google Ooh. alert that just pings you anytime anyone publishes something with the word utopia in it? Exactly. And as I was about to say, when I'm big, you're going to want me to be a reader of your stuff. So <laughs> this is the way to get me in your fan club. But the future of has- Utopia Studies starts now. <laughs> Here it is. Here it is. You know, mark your calendar. Uh, but he has these nice diagrams that you know help me conceptually map you know distinctions between social power, state power, and economic power. And so, sure, they're diagrams, but they allow me to think something along the lines of what we're talking about here. That as of right now, what the state tries to secure is you know economic power to do what it wants. Economic power we can think of you know, capitalism with its constant yearning for creative destruction that in in essence it seems in some ways that you know stability is really antithetical to you know capital's drive to totalize to expand and all of that and what we need to do is definitely restructure those relationships you know i think it's very important for social power to have more of the determining factor but then we have a different maybe a different map or paradigm under which security is working and so right now what is being secured is instability but Mm -hmm. you know but you know in many ways capital likes this because what's stable for it is you're always going to do what i need right and it seems to me that this is no way to live and you know the law of capital you know turns police into policy and we don't need that well, the insecurity that's built into the ground floor here is, and you know, the 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 reason why all these communities and everyone, everyone everywhere, basically wants there to be security and stability, is because we are separated from the means of our own subsistence, and so like we are. In the, it's not an ontological condition, right? This isn't just metaphysically true that like human beings ca- cannot like provide for themselves. We've been systematically deprived of the resources that we would require in order to like have a, like a, a, a stable existence at all. And this is part of the work that the state does in and through its uh, its permanence and its durability is to ensure that these conditions of deprivation are maintained, right, and indeed broadened, deepened. Like, this is part of the work that it does. Like, one of the interesting things that I always, like, think about is, like, neoliberalism, people talk about it as, like, this, like, uh, laissez-faire thing, right? And and we, like, are always moving in the direction of deregulation and privatization. And this is getting the state out of the way of the economy. But in actual fact, if you, like, look at the mechanisms of, of governance that happen, like, the state plays an extremely active role in, um, like, determining what... The economy looks like it's playing an incredibly important it's doing incredibly important work to make sure that like markets continue to exist and to expand and that you know we remain in this sort of state of uh, essentially subjection right wherein we need to continue to sell our labor under increasingly precarious conditions and so like reformulating the problem in these terms is helpful and this is i think why like you know neoclius is a good marxist about this stuff right that it's not just like you know we've got this ontological condition of insecurity that we need to like lean into but rather as you've been saying right like what we need is a massive redistribution of wealth and a reorganization of society such that this problematic of security makes less sense right that it's something that we would need to think about less 
right? Like if I don't have mm-hmm. to wonder about where my food's going to come from or how I'm going to make rent next month, then suddenly the security problem seems like less of a pressing issue, you know? Gil, are you saying that we should start talking about the withering away of security? Is uh, this- yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you I'm know, a security well- Leninist. <laughs> No, I, I I like that. Even though I said that, you know, as as a joke, because like you know, so it's it, it it seems like it's not about concept of limitivism to go back to you know the joke Owen made. You know, we're not so idealist. Like we're like we need to put this concept under erasure or something like that. That's not what's <laughs> going on. That really is something that like discourse <laughs> theorists. Am I wrong to say that that's like a move that continentalists like to make a lot? You know. Yeah. Once you've deconstructed security, you're halfway towards you know completely reforming the actual world. <laughs> I don't know well, what to say guys, to that. Listen, hey, well, no revolution like, in practice without revolution in theory. We all know. Like there's <laughs> this move that I recall today. from my francophone reading group, where it's like you decide that a concept is really problematic, and then everyone stammers around asking how to avoid that concept in the future. Mm-hmm. That seems and to be maybe even common. how to avoid accidentally saying that concept in the future, because you know, no worse way to show that you're on the wrong side than like you know, did I hear you say security a minute ago? Uh-oh. Like, get him out of the room. Yeah, I, get him out. I mean, I'm sorry. Like, no, don't take me away. Camps. <laughs> we'll throw you in the anti- we'll in the name of the anti-security, security, you must gulag. be disappeared. <laughs> okay, so actually, here's. I'm so glad you raised that point. I was going to ask... Gulags? I love talking about gulags. (laughs) Disappearing people? Please no, please no. I was going to ask about the latter part of uh, the book that we read where he talks about the nexus between security, identity, and loyalty, and he talks about it in terms of the McCarthy era. And in the name of national security, there was like... And his, his argument is that in the McCarthy interrogations, there was like this full fusion of your loyalty to national security being really fused with your identity. And he talks about how talking about the state infiltration of communists became a way of talking about sexuality and race and just all kinds of things that are completely extraneous. But it was like, you have to be the right kind of person to be secure. And if you said any of these trigger words, then suddenly you're on the outside of this. And it struck me that, I mean, first of all, that's probably true. That's extremely terrifying to read mm. those little copied paragraphs of like what the McCarthy interrogations were like. But I also started thinking, is this a part of increasing political polarization? So once the state starts to say, you know, the, especially the the there's a consensus when this in within the state about a certain kind of national security as there are for was for McCarthyism as there was for the war on terror as there are for the police now about this kind of connection between identity and loyalty and you can see it now like being against the police is like being against the country and whoa you know it's kind of dizzying you don't even know exactly how you get to that to to these kinds of identity conclusions but and disloyalty and so on But I also thought that if that's the way that the state starts to congeal, then this kind of the theoretical move to critique it can also start to take the same form. So this phenomena of 
suddenly, if you use the word security or self-interest in the case of neoliberalism, then suddenly you're like on the opposite side because you're like using the bad words. And so your identity Mm -hmm. is like the critic. Canceled. Yeah, you get a little canceled by other philosophers, maybe, if they see that if that if they're in that theoretical universe. But it creates this like very polarizing set of kind of alternative discursive universes that sort of strikes me as little rival security groups. So it almost in a strange way, you're talking about how uh, security starts to even colonize political discourse, like as, as like almost a frame, like, so, you know, security mm-hmm. becomes a, a sort of way of capturing identities and isolating them and, you know, pinning them to preconceived uh, political, uh, maybe we put ideologies and all of that uh like so yeah, yeah i'm just trying to like you know, are you trying to so, say like yeah almost so, like sorry this is like kind of an abstract point but i started thinking about for example foucault's arguments about how the concept of self-interest evolves under capitalism and then suddenly people start thinking that you know self-interest is is bad that's neoliberal you know, and then if you talk Ooh. about, hey, like I think we should maybe organize people based on their interests, like <laughs> oh, then suddenly okay. you're like very conservative. You're like very conservative because you're like, well, I think people have interests, and like that's as, I, as opposed <laughs> to organizing them according to what they never. Th- Wait, what would you be organizing them according <laughs> yeah. to? Okay, but <laughs> you guys are okay. I don't know if this is totally out in left field, but there's a whole book, like this book on feminism, where the first half of several chapters are diagnosing and, and critiquing the concept of interest as it's used by liberals and Marxists to talk about organizing people. And so I realized that there become these kind oh, of okay. like trigger words that people critique from the left. And then you kind of start developing a little a group around a world around yourself about of people who get that critique and then if you use the kind of, if you say wait a minute maybe we shouldn't disregard interest or security then that's like becomes very a very conservative thing to suggest because what's mm-hmm. what's radical is like the rejection of the framework so then you create this like po- conceptual polarization and a lot of you know we're living so is, is your is your vibe that we need to do critique and rescue on those uh, on those concepts, like interests, like Gil was mentioning earlier with Adorno. Yeah, I mean, like the text that we read was talking about needing to sort of reimagine security away from the kind of political imaginary that he's criticizing, and I thought that was a bit more useful than these other ways of of doing it. But it just struck me that they might be two sides of the same hmm. same phenomena. So. What, what I'm hearing from what you're saying, and this is something I've wondered about a lot, is so, you know, what does it mean when we're doing critique? Because, you know, maybe, <laughs> you know, I'm too into uh, the old boy Sassoor. Excellent cue. I don't think a word in and of itself tells me what that word is doing and what that word means. It seems to me more important to understand, well, how does it relate to other concepts and what is its frame? And so it doesn't make sense to me to be like, you know, this or that word. I mean, uh, unless it's a racial slur, I'm not making an argument for you all to go around like saying, you need to understand my ontological framework for this racial slur. I'm not saying that. (laughs) But, you know, I thought like he had this quote from... I guess there are times that I like what Foucault says, you know, uh, from practicing <laughs> criticism. I'm, like sometimes it's like, I oh. love how cautiously you say <laughs> wow. Wow. Like, you will, you will go that far, huh? I mean, look, look, I'm every time Foucault comes up is going to be like, 
No, no, like maybe this was all right. Like I'd have to read the rest of the essay, find out where it goes wrong. But when he goes right, you know, critique is not a matter of saying things are not right as they are. It is a matter of pointing out on what kind of assumptions, what kinds of familiar, unchallenged, unconsidered modes of thought, the practices we accept rest. And Mm -hmm. so it seems to me that is not the type of critique that's happening. If it's, if you use this word, I know what's going on with you you have to do the work of so what are the assumptions uh, in the concept that you are using and why is it being formulated in that way and so maybe i just don't think it makes sense to start out with a name and a concept and say there's something wrong with it if you're not telling me so what is the presupposed framework that gives that name or that concept meaning which is why I think it goes back to why I'm like, so is it jettisoning the concept security as such? Or from what I like heard you saying, Gil, what I thought would be very interesting is even if you're still wary of the concept security, what you were formulating there is uh, working towards developing a set of conditions under which the concept of security would become less and less salient. Mm-hmm. Less and less yeah. you needed, you know, right. and you know, you don't get yourself into the deadlock of absolute security or forever security because there's always some insecurity that you know that is at play. And and isn't it the case, and I'm curious what you think, that if we started to build power like in these other you know, seemingly maybe not directly related to security areas, right? Like something mentioned in that pamphlet is building tenant organizations, right? Like if we if we started to build power and there were forms of collective agency at our disposal that we could kind of join up with, whether that would start to reduce the salience of the appeal to security or introduce a kind of a different sense of what security means with a different constellation of concepts around it, right? That feed it rather than the constellation of concepts that surround the liberal capitalist concept of freedom, like policing, insecurity, fear, you know, protection of my stuff. Keep the minorities out. Kill the, you know, kill the poors. Yeah, 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 exactly. No, if security means not like call the cops so that they shoot my dog in four hours when they get here but or instead there like, is yeah, a like, thing with cops shooting dogs though they right? love shooting dogs what they love shooting dogs how can you be a fan of is an that organization true? that does they that? shoot their own dogs i read an entire twitter thread a couple weeks ago which was just images of hmm. police dogs that were shot by police officers in the line of duty. Why, why aren't police abolitionists mobilizing that li- you know that material more man that you gotta make that this stuff is, go viral this is how we win Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's how you win the libs man that's oh my god yeah once the libs find out the cops Wait, so they dogs, kill their own good. dogs i thought you meant they would like show up and kill your dog but they also oh, kill their oh, own they do it all dogs. they do both yeah they do both yeah. so the police are no. an- anti-dog they're very and anti-dog i think that you know there's certain you know uh discourses in the academy around animal rights y'all like, okay, don't even bring that shit me. up with me. Oh. <laughs> Owen won't no, stand for I this. Don't. Wait, you don't, you don't support animal rights? I didn't realize Owen rights? had like red lines, and that was sh- a shocking amount of affect. <laughs> don't even bring that yeah. shit up with me. Explain your position to us, Owen. All I know is that in, in the city of Chicago, the average dog is you know has more material well-being than the average human being. So I don't really... It makes oh. it hard. For, it, it makes it hard for me to fuck with that. Uh, you know, with the with the animal rights shit. That is true. It ain't the dog's fault. Oh, that okay. Fair enough. Listen, I want the dogs. <laughs> I want the dogs to be okay. I'm not. You know. Not Wait. So, are you saying right. that you're against animal rights, or do you feel um, 
some a more nuanced way about it. I'm against. Do you the, have any I'm nuance, against so. the discourse of animal rights. Not against animal rights, per se, and the function that that discourse has. And I just find it absorbs way too much empathic energy, too much thought, uh, and there's a lot more pressing, a lot more pressing needs. Right. So what you Peter think Singer is that we can all. So you don't support the discourse because, but you also think you don't. You're not against animal rights because you think that. I've seen no, Owen the, the problem. Many the problem. Dogs. Yeah. We can all like <laughs> live. Owen tortures dogs all the time. We can all have as good of a life as the average. <laughs> First, yes. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> I aspire I just, you to know, the life but you know of that, a middle you, class you, dog. You know that anthropocentrism. <laughs> stuff where they're like you know uh they try to they try to kind of sneak anthrop a critique of anthropocentrism in the back door while you're critiquing anti-blackness and critiquing patriarchy and now all of a sudden we're talking about anthropocentrism <laughs> i'm like i'm sorry like this is outrageous <laughs> being human doesn't give you shit in this world okay imagine showing up at a slum in like dhaka in like in bangladesh and being like oh man you got to check that human privilege you got it so fucking good just by virtue of being human i'm screaming I don't, right I don't, now this is the best I, thing I i've ever heard buy it <laughs> i i the anthropocene it's a geological epoch no, it's a capitalocene human. yeah capitalocene. <laughs> oh my god i will I always stand owen i did not know <laughs> about the depths here you can't get me started and on that i can't get that. started I see that What's you won't up? stop won't stop <laughs> oh. can't stop won't stop so we're pro-speciesism in this podcast i'm a i'm a huge speciesist <laughs> well no 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 i think lily had it right we are struggling for the means of a middle class dog i would and love so to have the comfort of a middle class oh my god humanist know that we are announcing the new chicago school answer is dogs are the way out we are raising our subsistence to the life of middle class dogs by the way dogs never worry about security because they don't have any sense of the future which is it's, it seems nice even if they looks, did think about how chill they would be with that <laughs> they would just know they're going to get those meals at the same time you know get those pets hey. at the same time every day get that love wow <laughs> honestly this started out as a joke but i'm rethinking utopia right here and now oh nice oh so i get we it we could all attach it. ourselves to somebody on the upper west side and live that way uh, forever my friend tom who gil also knows once once uh once told me that if you want to see the image of of the good life just look at a dog lying down out in the sun and just like look at that look of bliss on their face and that yeah. tells you what you know that's what we're fighting for yeah <laughs> but we want it for everyone you know <laughs> but for everyone but for everyone we want a state that secures our right yeah. to lay in the sun exactly. tongues out tongues out exactly belly up well belly on up. that belly on up. that note i think that does does it for us today uh, new episodes of what's left of philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts please like and subscribe follow us on twitter at left of phil uh, if you like what we're doing consider supporting us on patreon at patreon.com slash left of philosophy thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time bye thanks bye bye